Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Matt Francisco, and I serve as the college pastor here at Redeemer, and I would love to get to know you. Uh, I see it kind of as my role to get to know college students, to help them figure out where they are in their walks with Christ, and to help push them closer to Christ and figure out more and more what it means to follow him. I'm very excited tonight to start our journey in Philippians 1. Um, but before we do that, I have a very important question to ask. Uh, how many of you guys watch the Super Bowl? An embarrassingly few number of you guys. That's amazing. Uh, one of my favorite things to do after watching the Super Bowl, besides weeping because I'm an Atlanta sports fan and Tom Brady is Voldemort, uh, is to go back and look at the commercials because the commercials, right, are the best part of every single Super Bowl. So this year, I don't know if you guys noticed, there were a couple really good ones. There was this super weird avocados commercial, uh, bizarre Skittles commercial, and there were some also uh, a few $5.5 million duds, right? So YouTube just had this vote, and the worst commercial of the Super Bowl went to Yellowtail. If you guys don't know what Yellowtail is, then God bless you. Uh, Yellowtail it's the cheap wine that is only consumed by college students who don't know what wine is actually supposed to taste like. Uh, so you're welcome. Now, there's a lot to hate about this commercial if you haven't seen it. Okay, it opens up and there's this rooftop party on the top of a hotel. There's a guy in a yellow suit. He walks up to this classy woman who seems to be uh, having a conversation with a white wine enthusiast kangaroo. And this is what he says. This is a kangaroo. If you see it at a party, it's a good party. Because at Yellowtail, we believe in fun. Then the scene cuts to the barbecue where this kangaroo is suddenly miraculously flipping burgers for all of his mates. And everybody is immaculately dressed. They're having the time of their life. And then it cuts to this beach scene. Some really weird stuff happens. They go back to that rooftop party. It's now nighttime. This multi-talented kangaroo is now DJing for the crowd. Life of the party. And the spokesman looks at the camera and he says, and lastly, we believe in this. Yes, exactly. What, what in the world is this? What is he selling you? That a kangaroo with enough dreams and ambition can be whatever he wants to be? That if you drink enough yellowtail, you'll start to see kangaroos do some pretty wild things? I have no idea. Now, this is one of the worst commercials I've probably ever seen, but I don't want you to miss something really, really important in this commercial. Because this ad is selling you something, and it's selling you something beyond an undrinkable wine. Did you know that? This ad is selling you a very particular idea of the good life, or what James K.A. Smith would say is the kingdom. Now, what is Yellowtail's vision of the kingdom or the good life? What are the marketing executives at Yellowtail think the purpose of life is? Where do they think that you and I can find real joy and meaning in this world? So if you look into this commercial, the kingdom, according to Yellowtail, the good life is to pursue fun and pleasure without thought at all to the cost or the consequences. It's about doing whatever you can to live a life of leisure and have carefree sex. It's a self-centered vision about your individual pleasure. And why would Yellowtail imagine that this idea of the good life would appeal to you and to me? Because implicit in this commercial 
is something incredibly important. They're saying, this is what the good life looks like. This is what you know that you want. And this is what you know that you don't have. And just maybe we can be a part of addressing that problem. Now, I want you to listen to these words from James K. Smith from his book, You Are What You Love. And I've got it on the screen behind you as well. Our culture often sells us faulty, fantastical maps of the good life that paint alluring pictures that draw us towards them. All too often, we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail towards them with every sheet hoisted. And we do so without thinking about it because these maps work on our imagination. It's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we trusted faulty maps. A yellowtail is just selling us the very familiar narrative of our culture, even if they did it very poorly. This is all that there is. So you might as well get as much enjoyment out of it while you can. Life is about your comfort and pleasure. Chase the American dream. And towards the end of your life, just go ahead and cast your chips in. Relax. You've earned it. Life doesn't get any better than this. Now, I read a a study coming out of Harvard a few weeks ago that said that 50% of millennials think that the American dream is dead. And why is that? I don't think that it's actually, that it's harder to achieve the American dream now than it was 50 or 60 years ago. I just think that according to our great-grandparents' vision of what the American dream is, we've already arrived and we found that it couldn't deliver on any of its promises. It just wasn't what it said that it would be. It's a faulty map to joy and purpose. And if you don't believe me, listen to these words from Greg Easterman's book, The Progress Paradox. If you sat down with a pencil, this is fascinating, and graph paper to chart the trends of American and European life since the end of World War II, you'd do a lot of drawing that was pointed up. Per capita income, real income, longevity, home size, cars per driver, phone calls made annually, trips taken annually, highest degree earned IQ scores, just about every objective indicator of social welfare has trended upward on a pretty much uninterrupted basis for two generations. Don't miss this. But your graphs would lose their skyward direction when the topics turn to the inner self. The trend line for happiness has been flat for 50 years. The trend line is negative for the number of people who consider themselves very happy. And the trend line would cascade downward like water over a falls on the topic of avoiding depression. Americans and Europeans have ever more of everything except happiness. You see, the world's map to joy, purpose, and peace leads only to disappointment and despair. Yellowtail's vision of the kingdom will only leave you for hung, hungry for something more. My hope and prayer tonight is that as we look at Philippians 1, you will start to see the Bible's roadmap for joy, purpose, and peace. For who could better show us to have these things than the one who made us? Now, as we learn from Acts 16, Paul founded the church in Philippi about 10 years before he, empowered by the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter. And it's really obvious as you read it, and I hope that you join us this semester as we study Philippians in our small groups, that Paul absolutely loves these people and they love him too. The Philippians had learned that Paul was suffering in prison. So they sent a guy named Epaphroditus to go just check in on him. And Paul 
He's alone in this very dark prison. He's hungry. He's possibly facing execution. And he writes this letter as a response. Now listen closely because these are God's words. And as I said earlier, this is the most important thing that you could hear tonight. Starting in verse 12 of Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me pray for us. Father, in these next few minutes, we are here to hear from you. The last thing that any of these students need tonight is to hear from me. What they need is your spirit to come and to move in power. Lord, and your word says that the grass may wither and the flower will fade, but your word stands forever. And I pray tonight by your grace and through your spirit, you would speak to us clearly that Christ would be magnified. So speak, Lord. I beg you to overcome the frailty and sinfulness of the one speaking. And speak because we, your servants, your children, we're listening. Now look closely at these words again, okay? Because the Philippians, they, they send Epaphroditus because they're really curious about how Paul is doing. And Paul responds by telling them how the gospel is doing. He is in in prison awaiting a trial that in all likelihood is going to result in his death, which is terrible enough. But there's people on the outside who are preaching Christ with the sole aim to make Paul's suffering worse. Now, if you just stopped here for a minute and asked, how would you expect Paul to be feeling right now? What do you think is going through Paul's head? How would you feel if you were in Paul's shoes? Man, if... I was in Paul's shoes, I might feel abandoned by God. Or at least I would wonder what in the world God was doing. I, I might ask, why me, God? I mean, I'm, I'm out here trying to really faithfully live for you. What about those other people who aren't? I would at least be wondering if I had misheard God's will somewhere. But he doesn't respond in any of those ways. No, his response is absolutely otherworldly. Look back at verse 18. Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is rejoicing, even though there are some people who are preaching Christ only to make his life worse. Now, Paul, how can you rejoice here when you're alone and when you have nothing, when you might die? Let's keep reading. Verse 19. 
Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Let's stop here for a second, because I know what some of you are thinking if you're reading closely. Matt, didn't you just say that Paul didn't know whether or not he was going to make it out of prison? Yes. Then how can Paul say that he knows that this is going to work out for his deliverance? Because his definition of deliverance is not what you and I would think. He uses the word here, soteria, which is where we get the word, the theological word soteriology, which is the study of salvation. In other words, what Paul is saying is like, no matter what happens here, even if I don't get out of prison, I know that this will work together for my salvation, for my greatest good and rescue, that I will get to be with Jesus. Paul is writing to the Philippians. The Philippians are worried about Paul suffering in, in prison. And it's almost like Paul is saying to them, listen, you don't need to worry about what's going to happen to me because I know where I'm going. And there's nothing more important than that. Let's keep reading. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. When you read these words, you see Paul's overarching ambition, the deepest passion of his life, is that the Holy Spirit would give him courage to be a faithful witness to the majesty of Christ, whether by life or by death. How does he get there? And what does he mean that he wants to honor or glorify Christ, whether by life or by death? Now, don't miss this. Because the key here is in verse 21. And I don't want you to miss this just because you know this verse, just because you've probably heard this before. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I just want to take a minute and talk about the absolute insanity of what Paul just said. I remember sitting in a room in Minneapolis, Minnesota, during the 2011 Desiring God Missions Conference. There was a guy named David Sitton speaking, and he had been a missionary to Papua New Guinea for most of his life, and he had spent several years sharing the gospel with headhunters. And I remember him saying, you know why I don't think that there's a whole lot of missionaries out there? Because people read Paul's words, but they don't actually believe Philippians 1.21. They don't actually believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because do you know what enables me to go back into the jungles and to risk my life time and time again? Because I know that if a headhunter comes and he kills me and then he roasts my body over a spit, he's doing me a favor. Man, I remember being waylaid in my chair thinking, this dude is absolutely crazy. What in the world is he talking about? But read this again. Doesn't that sound totally absurd to you at first glance? But doesn't that seem to be exactly the kind of statement that Paul is making? Paul might get his head chopped off for the gospel. And he's not ignoring his sufferings here. He's not pretending like they're not real, like a Stoic or a Buddhist would do. It's just that his joy is absolutely disconnected from his circumstances. His identity is so tied up with Christ that his present circumstances, as awful as they are, are secondary to the advancement of the kingdom. Now that 
my friends, is insane. But a party will end. Even a wedding is eventually over. Beauty fades, a relationship can fall apart, wealth, a reputation can disappear in an instant. But Paul's joy here, it's tied to Christ being seated on the throne and Christ isn't going anywhere. So Paul's joy is utterly unshakable. It's utterly untouchable. Come tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. So how do you honor God in your body, whether by life or by death? You glorify God when you treasure him above absolutely everything else. When you understand that everything that you have has been given to you by God to display his worth. When you count all things as lost compared to knowing him, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Do you see? I remember hearing John Piper say that the reason that you've been given money is to show the world that money isn't your treasure. The reason that you've been given your looks or your abilities or your status is to show the world that these things aren't your treasure, but that Christ is. And your treasuring of Christ is most displayed to the world when you are willing to risk whatever the world holds most valuable for the sake of Christ, like Paul has. And if this sounds to you impossibly hard, you are absolutely right. I mean, look at Paul. Paul gets shipwrecked. He gets whipped. He gets stoned. He gets imprisoned. And ultimately, he gets his head cut off. Now, that doesn't sound like the kingdom to us, right? That doesn't sound like a picture of the good life. But if you read the Old Testament, if you look at Psalm 16, we learn that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And you might have heard me say this before. I say this a lot, that if in God's presence, there is fullness of joy, that means that outside of God's presence, you can't find fullness of joy. It's only in following his will, being near to God, that you can feel the joy that you were meant to feel. In other words, when Christ calls us to leave all that we have and follow him, when he calls us to hate our father or our mother or our sisters or brothers, that's a tall task, right? When he says, take up your cross and follow me, this isn't some morbid call to a joyless, unhappy life. This is the Bible's road and roadmap to freedom, joy, and purpose. This is the way that the Bible says to have the good life, and it's not found anywhere else. It's only when you count everything that the world has to offer as loss that you will find the joy and the peace and the purpose that you know that you were created for, the magnificent, true pleasures that last forever. That ache that you felt your whole life, that there's got to be something more than this. When will I eventually feel real peace or real happiness or real joy? You were meant to feel those things your heart will stay restless until it rests in Christ. And Paul doesn't have that ache anymore. This is why John Piper, echoing the first question of the Westminster Catechism, he often says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And one of the ways that we count all things lost, that we really treasure Christ, is by leveraging our lives for the sake of the nations. This doesn't mean that all of us are called to necessarily go to the ends of the earth, right? But if you feel a sense of relief at that, you need to check yourself. 
Why is that? What are you holding on to? Because all of us are called to take part in Jesus's final words, this great commission that he says in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Just a few chapters before that in Matthew 24, he says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In other words, if your treasure is so tied up with Christ, your heart is going to start to reflect his heart. And then you have to be kingdom building people. We have to be people whose joy like Paul's is wrapped up not in our finances, not in people reflecting and loving us for our beauty, our social status, or how much joy or fun we're getting out of life, but in the advancement of the gospel. God has told us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that he desires that no one would perish. He has told us that he has sheep that are not of this fold in John 10, 16, and that it is our job to go to the ends of the earth to gather in these sheep, to rescue our brothers and our sisters. And to what ends would you go if you had a real family brother or sister that was in slavery? I mean, at what point would you stop giving money if you thought that it would help to bring them in? When would you stop praying or beseeching the authorities to help you out? And what the Bible says is that you and I, we have real brothers and sisters who are in a much more twisted, devastating slavery now. The Joshua Project, one of my favorite organizations, uh, they seek to highlight people groups um, to help us to know how to pray for the world. And they said that of the 16,701 people groups in the world, 41.5% of them are still unreached. That means that they have less than 2% evangelical witness in them. 2.8 billion people who basically, if they wanted to know anything about Jesus, wouldn't probably know a Christian that they could go and talk to. Does that break your heart? Does that move you in the way that it should? Because I assure you that it breaks God's heart. My hope is that you would say that that shouldn't be. This shouldn't be the case. And we've got to do something about it. And God has entrusted us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, as his ambassadors to carry out this mission. This is an overwhelming, amazing task. What's it going to take to reach the world to see this ended? What we need is an absolute shattering of our self-wills to truly believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And whether God has called you to the mission field in particular or whether he's called you to help send and to help pray for while you faithfully live out what he's called you to here, we've got to be convinced that the good life is not the American dream, but it's a life that's poured out for Christ's sake. We, by God's grace, are really going to have to consider others better than ourselves and think of their needs before our own. We're going to have to be bold in sharing the gospel because their needs are great, but we're going to have to be brokenhearted because we need that same gospel just as much as the ones we'd be sharing it with. We're going to have to remember that we're a mist that appears for just a short time and then we're gone. Whatever we build in this life, we're going to have to leave it behind. 
Tis one life, twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. What would it look like if God just grabbed hold of the people in this room, if we were really willing to consider living for Christ and dying gain, to be able to say, as we previously sang, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, because thou art mine inheritance now and always. Before we bring it to a close, I've got two quick, quick stories to share with you guys. Um, I spent a summer in Thailand in 2014, and I met a Burmese Christian. We struck up a conversation, and it was, it was pretty great. I had just finished reading a book called To the Golden Shore, which was a biography of Adoniram Judson, who was the first American missionary to Burma. So I asked this Burmese Christian, have you ever heard of this guy? And he looks at me, he says, yes. I mean, every Christian in Burma knows who Adoniram Judson is. I mean, this Bible that I'm holding right here, it was translated by him. He made up this language and put a Bible into it. I go to Judson Church. I was fired up. Now, this may not mean a whole lot to you, but Judson went to Burma and he saw three wives and a child die. He was thrown in a lion's cage to await his own death. He was tortured for 20 months. For the first six years of his ministry, no one came to Christ. And then a guy came to Christ, and two years later, he fell away, so he was back to zero. But he died leaving a Burmese Bible, 100 churches, and 8,000 Burmese Christians. Today in Myanmar, which used to be called Burma, there are 4.3 million Christians. And Judson was just a little bit older than most of you. He was 24 years old when he answered the Lord's call to go to the unreached. And after he answered the Lord's call, something really unexpected happens that happens often to people in their mid-20s. He met a girl. So he met this girl named Anne, and he falls head over heels with her. But listen, instead of thinking, maybe God is instead calling me to something else, he invites Anne to go to the ends of the earth with him. And listen to this letter that he wrote to his would-be father-in-law before he asked for Anne's hand in marriage, because this is crazy. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, where they were originally headed, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of the perishing world? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can you imagine receiving that letter as a father? You mean you're going to take my daughter away from her? from me, from our family, subject her to literally only God knows what? Judson would say yes for the cause of Christ as I have taken up my cross 
and to me dying is gain. One more story. In 2011, I was in Thailand again. and We started sharing the gospel with this student named Earth. Yes, that was his name. Earth was fencing at the time that I met him because I have no idea why anyone would ever be fencing. But we start sharing the gospel with him, telling him the gospel out of Galatians 5.1 that, that is for freedom that Christ has set you free, that you cannot do enough to earn God's love, but in Christ, he did enough for you to welcome you into the kingdom. And Earth was one of the very few students that we met who was a very devout Buddhist. So Earth starts wrestling with these things, and then he heads back home for a Buddhist holiday. He doesn't know what to make of what we told him, so he goes to the Buddhist temple, and he asks the monk there, he's like, what do you think about this Jesus guy? And the monk looks at him, and he says, it's funny you should mention that. I had a dream last night. I had a dream that I was going on my way up to heaven, and there was a man standing in front of the gates of heaven. And I said, who are you? And the man said, you know who I am. And the monk said, you're Jesus, aren't you? And the man looked back at him and he said, you're right. And then I woke up and I don't know what that dream meant. And earth comes back and he tells us this. And that monk might not have known what that dream meant, but we knew exactly what it meant. That our Lord God, he is sovereign over all creation. And the great commission, it's not a hope, it's not a dream, it's a promise. It's coming true. Because God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And he will be praised among every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. He will get the praise that is due his name. And Christ alone holds the keys to life and death, right? Only he can let him in, but he lets him in. He lets all of us in by grace. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great cause to rejoice? Now, I know that some of you guys in this room, you might be a little bit fired up after hearing a talk, uh, primarily about why we should go to the ends of the earth without regard to cost. And I, I hope to some degree that that is true. But if you're really excited coming out of here, that motivation may keep you for a week at best. But how are you really going to lay yourself down to follow Christ wherever he may call you at whatever cost for the rest of your life? You're going to have to fix your eyes on the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Because Christ, he didn't just sell his possessions and move across the globe, right? He left heaven. He left his father's approval. He left all security and came down to earth and had nothing so that you and I could be his treasure. And if we picture him bloodied on the cross, looking at us in spite of all of our shortcomings, in spite of all of our failures and all of our sins, and say, I did this that I might have you, it's then we get to see that the kingdom of God, it's really like that treasure in the field that's worth selling all that we have in our joy that we may have him. And the more that you lay down for Christ's sake, the more you get of him. That's the assurance of Philippians 1. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray 
that you would finish your mission, that this gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth, that the end would come, that we would see you. God, and I pray that you would use me, use every person in this room as you see fit. God, may we, by your spirit, may we lay down our faulty treasures and declare with our lives to live as Christ and to die as gain because we get Jesus and there's nothing better than that. So help us to fix our eyes on him, treasuring him more deeply and obeying him more fully every day of our lives because we've been bought with a price. We're not our own, we're yours for your glory and for your joy. Amen.